0: Going to read from God's Word now in Psalm 73. So, if you uh, get your Bible in whatever form you have it, uh, have that in front of you. Encourage you to open His Word and see how God sees our world. Psalm 73: Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped; I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you have placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven? But you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds.
1: Thanks, Steve. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you uh, in worshipping Christ and uh, been encouraged through the songs and the kids' talk and the interviews by by the women and their thoughts as well. And we're dealing with God's Word in Psalm 73 this morning on the theme, From Doubt to Faith. And let me ask you this question. Are you questioning God today? Are you maybe doubting His love for you because of what you're going through? Is your faith a little bit unsettled, a little bit rocky and shaky this morning? The truth is that every Christian at some time uh, will ask questions. At some time, will wonder where God is or how is God working? Uh, Are you really there? They'll ask these types of questions. We'll often question our faith, and I've done that in the past. I think every thinking Christian will ask these tough questions because there seems to be an awful lot in this world that seems on the face of it to contradict a breezy confidence in God. And um, I can recount the situation again, and you know them. There's a COVID pandemic, it's changed our lives, and we wonder whether we will ever get back to anything that we used to call normal. Earthquakes and cyclones, wars and violence. There's terminal cancer, there is congenital handicap. There are marriage breakups and there's financial collapse. The Taliban, the militant Muslim groups, the terrorists, the rape, the ethnic cleansing, even religious cleansing. And every honest Christian will at least ask the question, how can a good God allow it? Especially if they're the ones who are suffering. Now, let me say that Christian leaders ask the same questions. It was about 10 years ago that I spoke the National Baptist Pastors Senior Conference, and uh, and I spoke as a devotion on Psalm 73, and I began by illustrating some real-life stories of people who have been through some tough times. For example, a pastor gives his life to the work of the gospel, then his precious daughter gets killed in a car accident. A young man gives up his secular job and trains for four years to be a pastor. He trusts God and moves to a most difficult church out in the country. He resigns after 12 months and returns with his family to Sydney due to the constant opposition by people in that church. Or you give yourself fully to God and your marriage collapses and you separate from your wife, despite seeking to honour God. Your pastor struggles to cope with the terminal illness. It takes his life leaving his young family behind. Or a young Christian decides to go on a short missionary journey. Only a short trip, but she dies on the way to the airport in a car accident. Godly women and men, servants of the gospel, taken in the prime of their lives, while evil people live on to their 80s and 90s. And you ask the question, why God? Well, Psalm 73 is a psalm of trust. It's not only a poem depicting the spiritual struggle of its author, but a psalm affirming the justice and righteousness of God. And it arises out of the individual experience of Asaph. He is a leader of one of David's Levitical choirs. And the psalm is comparable to the book of Job, but it is much shorter, much simpler. Visor, one commentator, writes... Indeed, it is the very simplicity with which the psalmist expresses most profound insights, which makes his song, in this respect, unsurpassed in the Old Testament. I agree with him. I feel that. There's something in this psalm which teaches profound truth. But you see, doubts arise for the psalmist from what we might call, in theological terms, the theodicy pro- uh, problem. Theodicy problem. Theos meaning God and deco meaning justice. How can the idea of the justice of God, the righteousness of God, be reconciled with the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the godly? God, if you are just, why do these things happen? It's called the theodicy problem. But more than a theological issue, this man is on the brink of giving up his faith. You see, it is so big for him, it may not be so big for you at the moment, Maybe not at this stage of your life, but it is so big for him that he's about to give up everything about his faith. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, he says in verse 2. I had nearly lost my foothold. Friends, this is not merely a theological problem, nor an intellectual problem. It is a matter of life and death, a question of the survival of his faith. Will he stay believing in God and be faithful, or will he throw it all away? And in the midst of such despair, and you've got to, to feel that in the psalm, there is deep despair in this man. He meets in a sanctuary, the place of worship, and God speaks to him. He's released from his doubts, his whole perspective is transformed, he gains God's perspective, and life moves forward for him. But firstly, there is the doubt and struggle in verses 1 to 3. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He begins with this word of affirmation, doesn't he? Despite his struggles, he knows that God is good to Israel. He holds on to this truth in defiance of all the doubts that torment him. He says, God, this is what you're like. I want to affirm this truth. But yet at the same time, been pushed to the point of giving up his faith. In verse 3, we note the occasion for the crisis of his faith. It was the jealousy with which the prosperity of the wicked, or due to the prosperity of the wicked. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The arrogant, the wicked were prospering. The evil people who hated God and hated people were doing well in life. And he says, I wanted what they had. I envied them. What do you do when you try to put your faith in God? But it's the other people, the arrogant, the wicked, the self-reliant, the atheists who have the good jobs, the big houses, the long holidays, eat at fine restaurants, wear the latest fashions, drive the best cars. He said, I got to the point of envying what they had. And he seems in point two, the seeming injustice of the prosperity of the wicked. There's a note of cynicism and bitterness flowing through verses 3 to 11. It's as if the psalmist is saying, you've had that read to us, Come on, let's face it. Whatever we say in worship, whatever we sing on a Sunday, whatever the pastor says, it is the corrupt and the callous people of this world who have no problems. They're happy. Everything is going well for them. They get away with murder, he says. Physically, they seem a picture of health. Emotionally, they don't seem to have any anxiety or depression that burdens us. And they are proud and they are contemptuous. They shoot their mouths off. They boss people around. And nothing ever seems to humiliate them. They're ruthless. They're cruel. They intimidate. They oppress. And nobody seems to call them to account for their crimes. People are attracted to them despite their sinfulness. Verses 3 to 11. And these people talk like atheists, he says. They say, God is irrelevant. Verse 11. How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? They're poking fun at God. God, are you not seeing this? The summer says. They have everything and they even poke fun at you. You have no power. You don't even see. You won't even do anything. All that hellfire and damnation is just old wives' tales. Nothing bad is ever going to happen to us, they say. No wonder the guy's miserable upset, he's just seeing that and think, God's not, this is not right and the psalmist says, and nothing ever does happen to them, just like they say this is what the wicked are like verse 12, always free of care they go on amassing wealth well is he correct, is he right or has he just lost the plot a little bit is he going to extremes here Well, I don't think he's correct. No, not at all. It's a very superficial perspective he has. You see, when you are miserable, the glass is always half empty. Say that again. When you are miserable, the glass is always half empty. He fails to see that the wicked, they too have pain and sorrow. But from a negative perspective, from a position of self-pity, that's a dangerous place to be in, it seems that nothing ever goes wrong for them. But the reality is, in our day, check the successful media stars. Not that they're necessarily evil. Pick up a magazine, go online and read about their lives. We may look at them and think, wow, I wish I had what they have. Well, I'll tell you what they have. Marriage breakups, infidelity, suicide, depression, drug addiction, unfaithfulness, Wild kids. They may look good in some of the pictures, but the truth behind it all, life is not that good. What about gang members? They never get away, they always get away with everything. Well, do they? No, they get shot. They get imprisoned. Life is not that happy for them either. What about the corporate cheats, you say? Well, they do get arrested. They do go to jail as well. Maybe not all of them. Friends, when you're miserable, the glass is always half empty. You can't see. Their lives are much better than yours. You only need a conversation or two with others to realize we're all in the same boat. So why is this seeming injustice a problem for this man at this time? Why is it a crisis of faith? Verse 13 and 14. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. He looks inside his heart and confesses that his moral indignation was born more out of self-interest than genuine moral idealism. This is important. He says, I envied the arrogant of verse 3. In other words, I think he seems to be saying if I had shared in their prosperity, I'd be a lot less concerned that God didn't judge them too harshly. It's only when I found myself victimized by God's providence, when I found myself plagued all day long, punished every morning, that these hostile questions began to arise in me. Friends, I think this is true of most of us. It is true of me. Let me confess that. We're not too concerned about injustice and suffering at times until it involves us, until it gets personal. You see, We read daily in our newspapers of maybe children killed on the roads, but it never really threatens our faith until it's our child that's involved in the accident. We have hundreds of people in hospital dying from COVID or cancer or heart attacks, but we never feel it to be a massive spiritual problem till it's my wife or my husband or my child in that situation. There are thousands of people impacted by unemployment, having financial stress, walking the streets in our country. We pass them by every day, but it's not until I lose my job that I suddenly start waving my fist at heaven and complaining about all the injustice in the world. I think that's the way we are. That's the way I am. The question we always ask is, why me, God? Why am I going through this? And what happens is that we talk to each other. And some of our self-talk is terrible. It depresses us. When you keep talking to yourself about how bad life is, it makes it worse. You say, why me, God? There are lots of people more wicked than I am. Why do I have to be the one to suffer? Why do I have to be the one who is poor or the one who is sick or the one who has lost my loved one? Why me, God? And those first-person singular gives us away. It's not our social conscience that is really outraged, it is our envy that has been inflamed. I envied the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Nevertheless, the problem he poses is a real one. Even if our motives are mixed, and I guess they're always going to be mixed, aren't they, as we live in a fallen broken world, what answer are we going to give to that question? your doubts are real and you may have real doubts today and you're really struggling, what's the answer? Because the devil is feeding into your mind thoughts like you can't really believe in God, can you? Look at what he's done to you. Look at where he's left you in your life. You trusted in him and look at your life now. In vain I've kept my heart pure. All day long I have been plagued, he says. I've been punished every morning. But then, There is a turning point, verses 15 to 17. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it deeply troubled me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. It was a famous Christian leader, John Wesley, who was one day walking with a friend who was very troubled with his own personal trials and who was expressing doubt about God's goodness. So there's Mr. Wesley, and uh, there's a mate. The man says, I don't know what I'm going to do with all of my doubts about God now. And Wesley, uh, I guess they're in a rural setting, he pointed to a cow that was looking over a stone wall adjoining the road where they were walking. They're walking down there, and there's the cow over there. He says, why do you think the cow is looking over the wall? Wesley asked. Well, I suppose because she can't see through it, his friend said. Precisely, said Wesley. You can't see through your doubts, you must try looking over them, he says. He went on to explain what he meant. And the advice look to the Lord may sound glib when right, but rightly understood and rightly applied, it enshrines a therapy which is the answer to doubt, which the psalmist here discovered. Look to God. Take your eyes above the problem. It was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Mentally struggling, perplexed, emotionally struggling, tempted to speak like the wicked. I was tempted to do it. If I had spoken out like that, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? For example, I would have betrayed your children. The very moment when he doubts God and he's going to speak these words questioning God, he remembers the fellowship of the believers. Now if you were gathered here this morning, I'd be saying look around. In your doubts, look at your brothers and sisters. Being part of community will hold you strong. So I say to you now, wherever you are, think of your Home group members or other believers who are in other homes. Right now, as we gather, separate in the middle of covert, picture them in their lounge room. Picture them in their dining room, watching this screen, listening to this word. Remember your neighbor. Remember the other believers. Because there's something about remembering other Christians that will help you keep moving forward for God. Get into a Zoom home group and see the faces. When we gathered on Tuesday with about 80 people in our prayer night on Zoom, just to see so many different faces. Let me tell you, that gave me a big lift to see you as we prayed together. And the psalmist says, I would have betrayed your children. I would have betrayed uh, your people, God, if I'd spoken like this. There is something about being with other believers that encourages you to keep going. So I say to you, pray with a believer. Ring them up and pray together. Organize to go on a walk together. And if you live in our area, it's not more than an hour, right? But that's long enough. Exercise. In your doubts, be encouraged by other brothers and sisters. I love gathering with my home group on a Wednesday night. We see each other, we talk, we pray, we encourage each other. And something happened as he remembered them. He said, I also entered the sanctuary of God that I understood their final destiny. Because he thought uh, the wicked people were getting away with everything and they would never be judged. But God says, no, no, no. In the presence of God, he's discovered something new. And it gets a true perspective. Now, we don't know what happened in the sanctuary of God. Maybe uh, he heard an oracle by the priest or prophet. Or maybe simply sitting there worshipping God, he remembered salvation history how God had been at work in his nation and God would continue to be at work blessing his people and bringing in judgment upon the wicked. Maybe in there, as he gathered in worship, he remembered verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Whereas let me say, when you are struggling with God, when you're struggling with your doubts and your questions, don't cut yourself from God and his people. And sometimes people are struggling and they run away from God, say, so I don't know what to do. Friends, if you are struggling, put yourself in the place of worship. Put yourself in a gathering with God's people because where you're going to get the help is not away from God, but in the midst of the people of God in the place of worship. Three new perspectives he he discovers. Number one, a new perspective on, on human destiny. A new perspective on human destiny. Then I understood their final destiny, he says. And remember that God is just, God is righteous, evil will be punished. You won't get away with sin forever. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgments. Whether in the old or the new, judgment must be faced. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. So their life is not based on a firm foundation. They're under the threat of ruin by God. God will come and ruin them. And it will be in a sudden disaster. Verse 19 ex- expresses the whole idea that it will happen suddenly under the judgment of God. They can be destroyed in a moment. They look strong. They, they look like they'll go on forever. They look like they have everything, but in an instant, God can change that. As one despises a dream after awaking, so you, Lord, will despise their image when you rouse yourself to activity, he says. Verse 20. A bit like fantasies. They go. They disappear. They have no value. And secondly, a new perspective on himself. So not only will the the wicked people be judged, but he learned something about himself. He's been blinded by doubts and envy. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He says, when I had a false perspective, when I didn't see things rightly, I was stupid, senseless, he says. I was ignorant, just like a brute beast, just like an animal. I didn't have an understanding. I was lost in my, my negative thoughts. Now, let me say, if you're counseling someone going through doubts, please don't call them a brute beast. But he is describing himself in this way. He says, that's what I was like. I really didn't see things clearly. I was stupid. But also he affirms his faith in a guiding God. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Friends, despite his doubts, I love this says, God, you are there with me. You hold my right hand. You guide me. God, you've never left me. You've been there the whole time for me. And I've now come to realize that, to remember again this basic truth that you're a God who guides me. In our home group this week, we are looking at Psalm 145, and we're studying some psalms, and uh, talked about how God was powerful. Well, God was our guide. God was our provider, and God was a, a compassionate God, slow to anger, rich in mercy. And um, a number of us mentioned how we were encouraged over the years by that piece of writing called Footprints. And you'll know it, most of you have heard it multiple times. And someone said, yeah, oh, that's been a great encouragement to me in my struggles. Or, and someone else said, that's been a great poem or story or piece of writing that's encouraged me. Let me read it to you this morning. It might encourage you again as you're going through tough times. One night I dreamed a dream. I was walking along the beach with my Lord. Across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. When the last scene of my life shot before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. There was only one set of footprints. I realized that this was at the lowest and saddest times of my life. This always bothered me and I questioned the Lord about my dilemma. Lord, you told me when I decided to follow you, you would walk and talk with me all the way. And I'm aware that during the most troublesome times of my life, there is only one set of footprints. I just don't understand why, when I need you most, you leave me. He whispered, my precious child, I love you and I will never leave you. Never, ever, during your trials and testings, When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Friends, it's a bit like that, isn't it, when we're suffering? We can't cope, in a sense, in our own strength, and we're completely reliant on God. Now, we need to be reliant on God all the time, but at those times we realize it is God who sustains us. It is God who keeps us. It is God who helps us to keep moving forward. It is God who helps us to keep believing and trusting in him. But more than that, he says, God will take him into glory. Beyond all of this, God will take him into glory. It may be a reference to fellowship with God beyond death, uh, probably. It may also be just the glory and honor after coming through the distress. We're not sure. But there's a beautiful glory to come, he says. Then he gets a new perspective on real values. Whom have I in heaven but you and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Friends, he's no longer concerned with the prosperity of the wicked. He's no longer concerned with how much they have, how much they possess, because now he has God, and God is enough. Martin Luther expressed it this way, as long as I have you, I wish for nothing else in heaven or on earth. Do you believe that? As long as you have God, that's enough. There's a beautiful song we sing, a worship song called Christ is Enough. And I think we are tempted in this world, even as Christians, to want other things and not find our total satisfaction in Christ and Him alone. So we often desire possessions and relationships above God. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first His kingdom, And His righteousness and all these things will be given to you. God will provide what you need. And and many times in my life, uh, through some difficult situations, I've held on to this verse. You may not have what others have. You may not have as much as what you used to have. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and God will give you all you need. Trust Him. But also Luke 9.23 has reminded me that it is costly to follow Christ. You don't have as much as others. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Friends, we gain our life by losing it. We gain our life by trusting in Christ, his death on a cross and his resurrection, and living for him. The psalmist gained a new perspective, which led him to new priorities. It ought to have the same effect on us. Serve the kingdom of God. Have one passion only, Jesus Christ. The psalmist then concludes with these words, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Judgment is coming. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge, I will tell of your deeds. He now has a settled position and conviction God will judge, evil people will not get away with evil. I want to be near God, I want to proclaim his good deeds. He is a good God. It's amazing how he moves from complaint to witness. The cup is no longer half empty. Are you struggling with your doubts? Look to the Lord and gain a new perspective on human destiny. Judgment is coming. A new perspective on yourself. Sometimes you do not see things rightly. A new perspective on real values. Love God, serve God, bring glory to Him. May God help you. May God help us as we live for God in challenging times, finding our refuge in Him. And telling off his good deeds to whoever will listen. Our song to follow this sermon this morning is a prayer. It really it's a prayer like uh, Psalm 73. In terms of the, the positive, the final part of the psalm. It says, I want to know you. May this be our prayer and our passion today. That we will know the Lord Jesus, know him more deeply and live for him. Despite the doubts, despite the struggles, despite the sufferings we endure God be the glory. Amen.